0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come at this time asking that the Spirit of God would Come down upon us with great power. For those who are in sin, that they would be convicted. The backsliders would be restored and sinners be saved. And for those who are living in the sin of unbelief, faithfulness or faithlessness, God, give them hearts that would believe. Would you strengthen your church through the preaching of God's word? Oh, would you anoint the hearing of it, we pray. Well, we need you, dear God, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're almost through the Passion Week. We saw the Last Supper, Gethsemane. Jesus was betrayed in Gethsemane. We saw the show trial before the Sanhedrin. Judas's Wickedness and treason, Peter's denial, and then last week we had a look at Judas's self-murder. In verses one through two of chapter 27, Christ is handed over by the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. He's handed over to Pontius Pilate so that he would execute him. And then verses one through two. Between that little passage and today where we pick up, you have the interlude of Judas's suicide. And then where we pick up today is basically where we left off two weeks ago. For some reason, Matthew decided to insert the story of Judas between the two texts, but really verses 1 through 2 leads naturally into verse 11. We have to remember as we come to this text that the Romans occupied Israel at this time. Israel had been conquered. They were conquered people and they were living under the Roman tyrants. And the Romans had subjugated them and had stripped them of some powers. And some of the powers, one of the powers that they stripped them of was their ability to execute their own criminals. So the Romans forbade the Jews from executing their own criminals. They could try their own criminals. They could punish their own criminals but they couldn't execute them. And if they wanted to execute anyone, they had to go to the Romans to have them executed. And so the Jews wanted to have Jesus executed and in order to have Jesus executed, they had to go to the Romans. Now The Jews hated the Romans, they loathed the fact that they had been conquered and they loathed the fact that Israel was occupied by Rome. They hated the Romans, they resented the Romans, they loathed the Romans. But apparently they hated, resented, and loathed Jesus more than they hated the Romans. Because they're willing to work with the Romans to have Jesus killed, to have him executed. Pilate was the Roman prefect of Judea. Caesar, what he would do is in troubled areas that the Roman Empire would conquer, he would appoint a prefect. And the prefect's job was to settle down and keep those troubled areas quiet. Jews, Judea, modern-day Israel, Palestine was a troubled area. Because of their religious fervor, they were prone to uprisings against the Roman occupation. Their religion was associated with their land, and their land was associated with their religion. And so they saw the Roman occupation as a violation of some of the promises of God. Pilate was the Roman prefect appointed to govern Judea to shut them up, basically, keep them quiet, keep them from having uprisings. He lived in Caesarea by the sea on the Mediterranean, which would have been a lovely place to live. But during the Passover times and the Jewish festivals, he would move into Jerusalem inland The reason he'd move inland into Jerusalem is because it was during the Passover, the festivals, the feasting times, that the people were more prone towards their uprising. That's when the religious excitement was at its height. And so because the religious excitement was at its height and because that would lead to uprisings, Pilate would move into Jerusalem during these times. So this being the feast of the Passover, the week of the Passover, Pilate was in Jerusalem, and his official residence in Jerusalem was the Praetorium. It was just north of the temple, and the Praetorium included a judgment hall. The judgment hall was where Pilate adjudicated matters. And so, as we saw in verses 1 through 2, Jesus, he was tried by the Sanhedrin in a show trial, then after the show trial, when they convicted him of blasphemy, they handed him over to Pontius Pilate. They marched him through the streets of Jerusalem, shackles and chains, tied up, looking like a criminal, made him look real dangerous, and they brought him to the Praetorium, Pilate's official Jerusalem residence when he was away from his residence in Caesarea by the sea. This is the location of today's text. The Praetorium, hours before the crucifixion of Jesus, the gavel's about to drop, he's about to be sentenced to be crucified by Pontius Pilate, and the uproar continues. The purpose of today's sermon, as we look at Jesus in the Praetorium before Pontius Pilate, is to highlight how marvelous Jesus is. I hope you leave the sermon today with an even greater sense that Jesus is marvelous, that he deserves your worship, deserves everything you have for who he is. As you, as you compare him to the self righteous rage mob that he faces, I hope you see that he's marvelous. As we compare him to this insecure tyrant, Pontius Pilate, I hope you see that he's marvelous. As as you see that Pontius Pilate himself perceives something significant about Jesus to the point where he himself marvels over Jesus, I hope you will see that Jesus is marvelous He's marvelous. The text closes by telling us that the governor, Pontius Pilate, was greatly amazed. I think there's a few reasons for that. One is, likely, the Pontius Pilate, as weak-kneed and as spineless as he was, he was a man of expediency, unprincipled. His only principle was to maintain power. Whatever he had to do to maintain power, that's what he would do. Jesus was principled, and he was confident of the fact that he had power no matter what. And so as Pilate faces Jesus, and as Jesus faces Pilate, I think one of the reasons that Pilate stood greatly amazed over Jesus is because he realized that Jesus had what he didn't have. He had what Pilate wanted. He had principled, and he had confidence in his power. But not only do I think that is one of the reasons that Pilate marvels at Jesus, I think in the providence of God, in the providence of God, the text closes by telling us that the governor was greatly amazed, he greatly marveled at Jesus. It closes with that because this is a foretaste of what's to come. It's a foretaste of the fact that one day all the governors of the earth, all the kings of the earth, all the lords of the earth, will truly marvel at our king. They will, whether they like it or not. And so while Pilate pauses for a moment to marvel at Jesus and to take in what has occurred, the marveling is fleeting. It doesn't take root in his heart. He perceives that something is significant about Jesus, but it's not enough for Pilate to change his ways. So instead of bowing to Jesus Christ, as all the kings of the earth will one day, he bows to the angry rage mob, eventually, and hands Jesus over to be crucified, and finds himself in the depths of terrible sin. But I hope today that as you see Jesus compare to the rage mob, and as you see Jesus compared to this weak-kneed tyrant, I hope that you will marvel. And not marvel in the way that Pilate did with a fleeting marveling. Fleeting astonishment. Fleeting awe. But marvel in a way that changes your life. And it causes true worship to well up in your heart. So that you stand in awe of the one true Christ. More more full of worship for having met him today, for having learned of him today. So you should leave in awe over Christ's poise, over his faith, over his confidence, over his sense of purpose, over his hope, over his person and his works. You should leave today for the greater love of Christ, you should leave the day desiring to worship Him more with an even greater sense of His worthiness. And as we close the service at the end of the sermon with the singing of His praises, you should have the praises of Christ welding up in your hearts so that you give Him His due through the singing of His glories. I'll outline what I'm going to say to you this morning. Divide the text up naturally. The first section pertains to the interaction between Pilate and Christ. The second section pertains to the interaction between the Jewish leaders and Christ. And the third section pertains to Pilate's reaction to it all Pilate and Christ, the Jewish leaders in Christ, and Pilate's reaction to it all. Let's look at Pilate and Christ for a moment. Pilate and Christ. Verse 11, it tells us that now Jesus stood before the governor. Jesus is now in front of Pilate. In fact, it seems to be a passive verb so that he was placed in front of the governor. Jesus is the, although he's supreme and he's in complete control, he's completely yielded himself to God's will and he is now being put here and there and told to go to and fro and so he is placed by force in front of the governor. He's bound at this point with chains, rope around his ankles and around his hands. And his face has been beaten as they smacked him around at the end of his show trial in front of the Sanhedrin. And he's covered with their phlegm and their spit as they mocked him. And here he stands chained and beaten and bruised and spit upon before Pontius Pilate in the praetorium. Before Roman power, you have to understand that as Jesus looks at Pilate, Jesus is looking into the eyes of Roman power. And as Pilate looks at Jesus, Roman power is looking at him. But what Pilate doesn't realize, but I suspect he got a glimpse of, is that as he was looking at Jesus and Jesus was looking back at him, Pilate looked into the eyes of heavenly power, of God himself. It was God himself that was looking back at Pilate, and I think Pilate caught a flash of it. But it wasn't enough for him to amend his ways. Wouldn't it be a shame today if you came to church and you caught a flash of the glory of God and you saw God in Christ, but you just walked away from it and changed it and didn't change like Pilate? You saw it, but you didn't act on it. Oh, that would be a shame. That'd be a terrible shame because that's exactly what Pilate did. Well, Pilate, as he has Jesus standing before him, repeats the charges of the Jews in verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? The Jews had alleged that Christ was a, the other gospels indicate to us, that he perverts the nation. He's a traitor they'd alleged that Jesus forbids the paying of tribute to Caesar the Jews had alleged that Christ claims to be a king which he most certainly did but they tried to paint him as some type of an insurrectionist like a militia man or a terrorist it was trying to topple Roman power. And that would have been something that would have been likely in those days because of how much and how, how much religious fervor went into their Roman resentment from the Jews. So it would have been likely that someone would have been a militiaman or a zealot or would have been trying to lead an insurrection. In fact, they happened. And so the Jews tried to paint Jesus as an insurrectionist and as politically dangerous. And as they paint him as an insurrectionist and as politically dangerous, somebody who's going to try and take out Pilate or somebody who's going to try and take out Caesar and overthrow the Romans and launch an attack on him and create an uprising in Israel, which was something that could have very likely happened and did happen from time to time. I want you to see that the Jews in this context are not relying on their original charges. The original charges that were levied against Jesus, was that he was a blasphemer. So if you look back at chapter 26 and you see verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And so they, as they tried him before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, They got him on blasphemy charges. They were trumped up. It was a show trial. It wasn't real. But that's what they got him on. But now, they're not standing before... He's not standing before the Jewish court anymore. He's standing before the Roman court. There's two courts at work. You had the Jewish court, which was the Sanhedrin, the 71 top men of Israel. Now you have the Roman court. And as Jesus stands before the Roman court... They no longer bring the charges of blasphemy. The Jews don't bring those charges against him anymore. And why don't they bring those charges of blasphemy against Jesus? Because the Romans don't care about Jewish blasphemy. In fact, in fact, the Jews accused the Romans of blasphemy on multiple occasions because of their idolatrous behavior. Pilate had brought in Roman insignias into Jerusalem. At one point in time, and the Jews it provoked an uprising in Israel. Why? Because they perceived it as blasphemy. So as they bring Jesus to Caesar, or to Pilate, Caesar's representative, they don't bring him on the charges of blasphemy, even though that's what they convicted of him, him of before their own high court. They bring him on the charges of treason. And so Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? He's claiming to be a king that's subverting Caesar, and that's what the Jews have levied against him. They're in Rome, so the Jews are doing as the Romans. Now, safe to say that Pilate looked at Jesus and could tell that he wasn't a political threat. After all, Jesus was a Galilean from northern Israel, northern Judea, and Galilee was the redneck region of. Judea. He had a Galilean accent. He was nothing but a Galilean peasant. His following had completely abandoned him. And Pilate was a smart man so he could see through the Jews' lies. Pilate did not perceive that Jesus was a political threat. In fact, as you read the trial of Jesus before Pilate, you get the impression that Pilate wants to weasel his way out of this somehow. He's afraid of the Jews. He's afraid of the Jews because there's been uprisings before. And Caesar just wants Pilate to keep things settled down in Israel. So Pilate's sole objective in Israel is to make sure things don't get too heated. So he wants to calm the Jewish crowd. But he does not believe their lies about Jesus. Leon Morris helpfully tells us just that. He says in his commentary, he says clearly one side of Jesus was enough to tell this experienced governor that this was no terrorist no leader of a revolt aimed at overthrowing the Romans. Pilate would also have known that Jesus had no high position, no wealth, no soldiers, a preposterous position for anyone claiming to be a king. So I get the sense in this. The Pilate was looking for an excuse to let Jesus off the hook. He almost hoped that by asking this ragtag Galilean, with no followers, who was standing there in chains before him, with his face all mangled and Jewish phlegm stripping down his face for having been spat on so many times, you almost get the impression that Pilate is hoping Jesus gives the right answer so that Jesus gets off the hook. He's hoping for it. Get him out of this pickle. Get Pilate out of this pickle. Are you the king of the Jews? It's almost that in asking this question, as Jesus stands before Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? It's almost like Pilate is throwing Jesus a slow pitch with a beach ball. Look, all as you have to do, Jesus, is connect, and you're off. All you have to do is connect. Well, Jesus doesn't take the bait. He answers in verse 11. To this question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. It's the same answer as chapter 26, verse 63 through 64. He was asked something similar. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the God, Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now in that passage, Jesus said he was the son of God. In this passage, Jesus says he's the king of the Jews. Because the Son of God, the Messiah in the Old Testament, they knew would be a king. This, by the way, is the very last time that Pilate hears from Jesus Christ. Never hears from him again. Jesus just says, you have said so. He answers in the affirmative. And that's the last time, the very last time that Pilate ever hears from him. Jesus never says another thing. And it's as if this was going on. Pilate says, tell me, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. It's almost as if, well, Pilate is trying to get Jesus off the hook so that Jesus can go free. In Jesus affirming his own kingship, he's giving Pilate the opportunity to get off the hook so that he can go free before the judgment seat of God. Because all Pilate has to do is fall on his face before Christ and admit that he's the king of the Jews and he's off the hook. Well, Pilate, I mean, look, Jesus throws Pilate a slow pitch. Pilate's standing under the judgment of God. And all Pilate has to do is believe the word of God that just spoke. And he won't do it. He won't do it. Jesus, this Galilean peasant, all his followers have abandoned him. His face is all mangled with phlegm dripping down his face for having been spat on in shackles, has no shame in asserting his authority before Pilate. No shame. He doesn't blush. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't worry about making it, More tasteful. He doesn't say, Well, yeah, I'm the king of the Jews, but you know, it's kind of an awkward situation that I'm in right now. And like, there's none of that. You have said so. He can stand there on his own two feet with his shoulders back and his head up, and he can admit that he's the king of the Jews without blinking. He's the king of the Jews. He's not ashamed. This, of course, speaks to how confident Jesus is in his claims and how confident Jesus is in the fact that he will be vindicated as the king. He will be vindicated as the son of God. And by the way, when we stand before a mocking world, we should be taking our cues from our king. You want to live in a godless world where people mock Christ and people hate Christ People want to take out their hatred of Christ and their mockery of Christ on his people by celebrating their blasphemy in the streets and mocking those who will not join them. We can take our cues from Jesus and we can stand on our feet with our shoulders back and we can have our head out high and we can say, yes, he is our king. He is. I don't need to flinch. I don't need to blink. I don't need to blush. In fact, I won't. By the way, we're going to stand before... Court this week, Osgoode Hall in Toronto, As our church stands before a court, and we have to answer, the elders of this church have to answer before the second highest court that we can face in this country for why we would dare gather to worship our king. And our only answer needs to be to the people that we face, the three-judge panel that we face, is yes, he is our king. You've got a chance to get off the hook right now, too. You see, we're not on trial. They're on trial. and We stand as Christ's representative, representatives in this dark world. And we need not flinch. We need not blink. We need not blush. And even though we don't look like kings... Or look like the servants of the Most High Kings. And even though we don't have any earthly power, we can stand there like Jesus in faith and hope, believing that yes, his cause will be vindicated. It most definitely will. Without flinching, without embarrassment, despite the optics, despite the optics. It's an act of faith. To be able to believe that this man who's covered in spit and whose face is all mangled and who's there in shackles, standing before Roman power as a Galilean peasant whose followers have forsaken him, it's an act of faith to believe that he's the king. Oh, and he is the king. He is the king. And just as the tables will eventually turn on Pilate one day, so they will eventually turn in our causes We must possess the same confidence, not a fleshly, carnal confidence, but a confidence that comes from the faith of an individual who's been born again, as we have, with the spirit of the living God dwelling within us, testifying to us in our innermost being that yes, indeed, as the Father said from on high at the baptism of Christ and on the mount of transfiguration, this is his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. Beloved Son, Pilate in Christ. Well, we've seen Pilate in Christ. Let's look at the Jewish leaders in Christ. Pilate in Christ. Now let's look at the Jewish leaders in Christ. The assertion of his kingship made them lose their minds. Made them crazy. Hysteria breaks out. They hurled allegation after allegation after allegation at him in an eruption of madness. You could just see. They stand there and they listen to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? This is what he's on trial for. Yes, I am. And all these Pharisees, the 71 people who gathered around that Sanhedrin are looking in, and they hear it. And the eruption that would rise in them is they can see it in Pilate's eye that he's wavering, and he just wants to get Jesus off the hook. And then Jesus comes out and he says, Yes, I am. I am the king of the Jews. It is as you say. And the Jewish leaders just want to pounce on him. It says in verse 12, But when he was accused by the chief priests And the elders, he gave no answer. Now, the word accused there is what you call a present infinitive. And it means that the accusations are continuous. So when you see this, when he was accused, the idea is that there's accusation after accusation after accusation after accusation that goes on On the heels of Jesus' admission that he is the king of the Jews. And how how do I know that? Well, not only do I know by the tense of the verb, the infinitive, the present infinitive, but I know it by the fact that it says he was accused, who? By the chief priests and the elders. There's multiple, and we know there's a 71-man panel on the Sanhedrin. Then beyond that, you just skip down, just move ahead to a little bit. Pilate asks him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? As the scene breaks out, I'm trying to paint the picture for you. Jesus is on the stand. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, it is as you say. And then these guys just blow up. They pound him with allegation and after allegation and after allegation. And and I don't know all the obscenities that they hurled at him. But they did everything they could. And what happens is he provoked these demons of hell, but what happens was he gave them no answer. Verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. He he answered what he had to answer. He's not answering anything more. He already told them that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now he's admitted that he's the king of the Jews. He knows the charges were frivolous. And he knows that Pilate knows the charges are frivolous. And he was focused on his job and submission to his father, and he has no time for their monkey business. It is now his time to die, and these scoundrels aren't worth answering because he's got his eyes focused on the cross. He said what he had to say. He testified before Pilate that he's the king of the Jews. He is going to let Pilate, just has to admit that, he's off the hook. He already testified before the Sanhedrin that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. They don't want to hear it. They could have heard it and got off the hook. He's borne his last witness to them. And now he's got nothing else to say. So Isaiah 53 verse 7 comes true where it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let me give you a little caveat to this, because I've seen people twist this text before, and they twist this text to point out that we should always be silent as Christians. Well, look, Jesus was silent. Why aren't you more quiet? I've certainly been accused of that. Why don't you say less? Jesus didn't say anything. But here's the thing. Christ wasn't always silent. He was silent here. But the reason he's standing trial is because he provoked them with his preaching in the temple, and he certainly wasn't silent there. In fact, his tongue was razor sharp. And he made mincemeat out of them with what he said. So we shouldn't let people use this text to tell us that we should always be silent. There's a time to speak and there's a time not to speak. And when it was Jesus' time to speak, he knew we had to speak, but when it was his time to be silent so he would be led as a lamb to the slaughter, it was his time to be silent. Matthew Henry helpfully says the same thing in his commentary where he says, we must not thus by our silence throw away our lives because we are not lords of our lives as Christ was Lord of his. Nor can we know as he did when our hour has come. So I imagine Matthew Henry, the Puritan, maybe he found himself in the same type of trouble at times. Why don't you be quiet more? Well, because I'm a preacher and I'm supposed to talk. That's why. Why? But with all the allegations being hurled at him, he silently demonstrates the certainty of his hope, the strength of his faith, the depth of his character, totally in control and silently stares them all down. Could you imagine how piercing Christ's eyes were in that moment as he looked at them? I mean, Pilate saw it. Something flashed before Pilate in this text. And when our enemies deride our Savior and persecute our actions, we can silently stare with the same hope, with the same strength that comes by faith, that in his time the tables will be turned, that his servants will be vindicated. As we hold fast to his claims, look, and even as we look at our own situation, even if the courts don't rule in our favor as a church, Even if they don't, we can hold fast that, yes, I don't need a court to tell me that Christ is king of his church. That we are his people. We stand on the solid ground of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that in his time, his claims will be vindicated. Maybe you're a church today and you're a skeptic. You're unbelieving, and you have no fear of God. You resist the Holy Spirit of God in your heart. I want you to know that one day, I mean, Jesus is offering you free grace today, and he's offering you free pardon today, and he invites you to receive his mercy today. But if you resist the free offer of God, if you spurn the free offer of grace, the day will come when the tables are turned. So come today. Don't be like Pilate be like those Jewish leaders? Come today and get off the hook. I'm throwing you a slow pitch. All you have to do is connect, believe in Him by faith, and you receive full pardon for your sins. It's a glorious promise. Won't you come to Jesus? Well, we have Pilate's interaction with Christ. We have the Jewish leaders' interaction with Christ. And then finally, we close with Pilate's reaction. Pilate's reaction. Pilate gives him another chance to reply to these men in verse 13. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? It must have been madness at that trial. Note how many things. This is... This was a first-century social justice mob. That's what it was. This is a first-century social justice mob. And remember that Pilate despises the Jews, so he's likely giving Jesus another shot. In fact, one commentator notes that it was the custom to give the accused three opportunities to respond before the sentencing. So Pilate's given him an opportunity to respond. Get off the hook. It repeats what happened in chapter 26, verse 62. They say, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? And like before, when he stood before the Sanhedrin, he remained silent again, verse 14 of chapter 27. But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So you have this picture of allegation after allegation after allegation after allegation being thrown upon Jesus Christ. And what does he do? doesn't answer one of them. He's quiet. The only one he answers is the one he needs to because he wants, wants to assert his kingship. In asserting his kingship, he'll answer them, but he won't answer all this other nonsense. Like before the Sanhedrin, he remains quiet. And what happens? Well, Pilate was amazed, verse 14 of chapter 27. But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Amazed? Why? Why was he so amazed? Well, he'd seen criminals before, and they don't act like Christ. And he saw the religious leaders, and they were just a bunch of wild-eyed crazy men by this point, a bunch of demons that have gone crazy, and they're not acting like Christ. Like Christ is just his composure and his poise is there. And he knows that Christ was innocent, and yet Christ, in his dignity and poise, didn't even answer them over this nonsense. And so he stands amazed, and I think he's... In part amazed because Christ has something he doesn't have. Pilate's whole life is, I've got to maintain power. I've got to maintain power. I've got to maintain power. I'll do whatever it takes to maintain power. I'm afraid of losing power. That's, that's Pilate. I mean, they, Caesar got these guys in and out all the time. I mean, they're like, you know, they're like professional sports coaches. You can't get, make the team win. You're done three years. That's the way these prefects were treated. Okay? They're in and out. Shift them up. There's the scapegoat. And and Pilate looked at Jesus and he says, Jesus got something I don't have. And and I think, I think I suspect that, that maybe there was a part of Pilate where he was looking into the eyes of the Son of God, that something flashed before him where maybe this isn't the last time I'll look before his eyes. Maybe the day will come when he will show his kingship and I will have to bow. Maybe I will have to honor him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I suspect that flashed before his eyes as Christ offered him one more chance. But either way, Pilate was amazed. No, he wasn't amazed. Did you see what it said? He's greatly amazed. Greatly amazed. We see this happen several times in the Gospel of Matthew. I think this is a climactic moment in Matthew. Matthew. I'm going to give you a little bit of review for a minute or two here. It happens in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. Disciples were amazed that Jesus calmed the storm, and the men marveled. So the word marvel, you're going to see it here, marvel, amazed, astounded. It's the same Greek word that we see in chapter 27, amazed. Okay, same word, they just translate it differently. Well, after the calming of the storm, what does it say? The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? Even the winds and sea obey him. Chapter 9, verse 33, cast out demons. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled. Same word, marveled. The disciples marvel, the crowds marvel. Chapter 15, verse 21, the crowds marvel again, or 1531, rather, where it says, so that the crowd wondered, that's the same word, wondered, marvel, amazed in the Greek language, which the New Testament was originally written in, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Chapter 21, verse 20, same thing happens. The disciples are amazed at the withered fig tree. They look at the withered fig tree. Chapter 21, verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once after Jesus told it to wither? And in chapter 22, verse 22, the Pharisees marvel at Jesus. After they heard his teaching in the temple, it says, and they heard it and they marveled. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So the disciples marvel. They're amazed, the crowds are amazed, the religious leaders are amazed, and finally Pilate, Roman power, stands amazed. But there's something that happens in this verse that doesn't happen in the other ones. Doesn't happen with the disciples, doesn't happen with the crowds, doesn't happen with the Pharisees. The modifying word greatly is added, it's a climactic moment. They were all amazed at the calming of the storm. They were all amazed at the healing of the sick. They were all amazed at the withering of the fig tree. They were all amazed at his teaching in the temple. But this is climactic. Pilate is greatly amazed. Greatly amazed. It's a high point. Exceedingly it could be translated as. Amazed to a high degree as he should be. Because he was staring into the eyes of the Son of God. He who is righteous fully submits himself to injustice in this moment so that we who are unrighteous can be justified. Are you amazed? Amazed at Christ? He who is king submits himself to this false king in faith that he will be vindicated as true king. Are you amazed? Stand amazed at him? The false allegations against him are not as bad as the sin that we have put upon him as he atoned for our very own inequities upon the cross and God leveled on him on our behalf. That's how much he loves us. Are you amazed? We have Pilate in Christ. We have the Jewish leaders in Christ. And finally, we have Pilate's reaction. And what's Pilate's reaction? He's greatly amazed. Why? Because he's staring into the eyes of somebody who is greatly amazing. As he should be. He is exceedingly amazing. And he maintained his composure through this entire ordeal to bear the reproach on our behalf. And we should stand amazed too. Because he's heaven's gift to us. And all his person, and all his work. He is exceedingly amazing.